Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Today in the China Power podcast, we're going to hear a Chinese perspective on China's Belt and Road Initiative. Launched in 2013, the BRI is an ambitious program to enhance connectivity through the construction of infrastructure projects across more than 70 countries. Since its inception, the BRI has received mixed reactions. Many countries have enthusiastically accepted Chinese loans because they're in need of infrastructure. But in some cases, BRI projects have not yielded beneficial economic, environmental, civic, and social outcomes. The United States, in particular, has been critical of the impact of China's BRI loans and projects on recipient countries, and it has encouraged developing economies to pursue alternative partners who will provide beneficial and sustainable development. At the second BRI forum, Xi Jinping implied that the BRI needs improvement, calling for green infrastructure projects, green investment, and green financing, as well as transparency and green governance. So, what is China doing to increase the BRI's appeal to prospective partner countries? To answer this question and discuss developments related to China's Belt and Road Initiative, I'm joined by Dr. Huiyang Wang. Dr. Wang. Is the founder and president of the Center for China and Globalization, Dr. Wang. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Bonnie. So it's been six years since Xi Jinping launched、uh, the Belt and Road Initiative. There's lots of disputes even today about what the goals of the BRI are. So, how would you describe the goals, and do you think these have remained consistent over time, or have the goals evolved? I think the Belt and Road is a global initiative that、uh, initiated by China, but they define that as、uh, not just a China project; it's a global project. I think for the last six years、uh, since President Xi has proposed that, it has been gradually evolving. So they had two、uh, Belt and Road summit,、uh, one in 2017,、uh, one just in 2019 this year. So I think that、uh, they have a, there's a, originally there's quite a few、uh, connectivities、uh, in mind, like uh, uh, policy connectivity, infrastructure connectivity, financial connectivity, people to people connectivity, and also of course、uh, business connectivity. So so I think in general, it's really a new global project that uh, uh, China initiated. To really to put new impetus and a new、um, uh, investment and new development plan actually for the developing countries along the Belt and Road, which is I think also revived a spirit of the Silk Road that、uh, has been、uh, there for thousands of years. So so I think in general is that it's a China's initiative, but they want to engage the world to participate and then to be working together as the principle of a, of a Belt and Road has stipulated that it be、uh, jointly consulted, jointly built, and jointly benefit. So, so, so I think this is really how it started. So, where do you think in the world that the BRI has been most successful? In some places, it seems like it's been more successful than than others. And how would you describe the major achievements so far? The Belt and Road actually initiative for the last six years. Now I would like to you know make that more a planning action. It's no longer an initiative. It's already something happened for the last several years already. I published an op-ed on China Daily just on the day of Second Belt Road Summit opened in Beijing、uh, this year, and also subsequently I published another op-ed at South China Morning Post, which I'm saying the Belt and Road is actually an international development plan. Maybe we should rephrase Belt and Road as the Belt and Road International Development Plan. So, so I think that is really the、uh, objective. I think the achievement of Belt and Road is that in the last six years, it's actually. 
at first, nobody knows about it. The name was difficult. There was uh, several names uh, initially, <laughs> but then finally it's a BRI. And, uh, and also, I think, an awareness of that. Of course, when, when you first sound the Belt and Road, it sounds like a holiday movie or something. You know, there was people don't get the uh, right. But now I think the good thing is that the concept has been gradually made its publicity and awareness uh, around the world now. And then second, I think there's quite a few um, success stories on that. One of the good examples would be uh, recently I was in um, Athens in Greece uh, attending a New York Times uh, Athens Democracy Forum. I was hearing the uh, prime minister of uh, Greece speak at that forum saying, look, we have this plot of uh, Paretas of, of, uh, in Athens. Uh, when China was uh, helping to work on that port, it was uh, ranked uh, about 90-something in the world as a container report. Now become 30-something in the world as a, one of the business in the Mediterranean and then the, uh, the gateway to Europe. So that really and created almost 10,000 jobs. And then another, there's another project. There's a speed train from uh, Chongqing and the west, southwest of China to German city there and also created several thousand jobs locally and have been well-received. But this is not just limited to the Central Asia and to Europe, but also to Africa. For example, we know there is a company that never sell any mobile phone in China, but then it actually did very well in, in Africa. And one of the shoe manufacturers in Ethiopia creates uh, 7,000 jobs on just one factory there alone. So, so I think there are also some, of course, criticism and uh, some perception uh, on Chinese Belt and Road. But in general, I think there was quite a number of good stories which hasn't really been talked about. So, so I think in general, this project is really helping developing countries, uh, particularly uh, infrastructure-wise, which China has a lot of experience. And that is really good. That is what needed for the developing countries. So I'm wondering how you view U.S. criticism. And of course, some other countries share some of this criticism. Do you think that any of the concerns that the U.S. and other countries have expressed are fair? And is it recognition of the problems that actually led Xi Jinping to make some of the remarks that he made at the Second Belt and Road Forum? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that, you know, because this is a new project and never nobody has done that before, and also it's on such a large scale, it certainly is in the process of continuing improving. And I think there could be, you know, one or two projects that didn't go well or maybe didn't interpret well that by U.S. or, or some other countries' media. But in general, you know, it, it's still doing uh, quite well. Uh, as a matter of fact, for example, one of the uh, severe criticism was uh, from U.S. was the Belt and Road was a dead trap. You know, China would work on that project, but then uh, we, we dead burden the uh, the country, and then finally China would take over the project and things like that. But I was interested to, to read uh, the Rodian Group, actually, uh, a U.S. company that tracked uh, China-U.S. trade investment on both sides. They actually recently published something on the Financial Times, and then they look at the 40 cases of China investment in the last uh, 10 years, and then including the uh, Belt and Road project. And then they find probably, you know, maybe only the one project, like Sri Lanka, maybe uh, have some kind of a project wasn't going as well as they may think. But then all the rest of it seems okay. You know, a lot of loans were was extended, a lot of loans were forgiven, uh, there was quite a lot of loans was rescheduled. Uh, so, so there were very few cases of uh, that trap, as probably U.S. friends may, may think about. So so it, it's really this English uh, uh, saying that, uh, 
you know, good news never travel, and the ill news maybe uh, <laughs> travel far and wide, and that may echo that. So, so I think, the, of course, it's not perfect. The Belt and Road never perfect, but certainly, largely, it was good. But there are certainly some problem that singled out by the U.S. media and then has been criticizing. So, so I think it's an evolving process, and hopefully, we can. Uh, continue to to improve that and uh, working even with our U.S. companies. I know there are some U.S. companies interested in the Belt and Road Project. We have been, my CCG, my think tank, we had received U.S. companies. Uh, as a matter of fact, we also recently, uh, a U.S. embassy uh, trade section talked with us, uh, discussed about uh, Belt and Road Project as well. So, so I think there's a way probably in the future we could work together. So there was a World Bank report that evaluated the BRI, and it outlined these four areas of risk, which it described as fiscal, governance, environmental, and social. So how do you evaluate this? Is there one that stands out to you as the most serious risk? I think the World Bank has a lot of experience. So like any other project, even the World Bank project, you know, all those development projects are, are easily associated with this kind of risk uh, that they talked about. So it's a good uh, caution that on this side. But also the World Bank has uh, also said that uh, if the Belt and Road project is fully implemented, the initiative could lift uh, 32 million people out of poverty. And also the global trade will be boosted by 6.2% and things like that. So so I think they set things on uh, cautious uh, on the side, and then, but also they recognize the progress. What I was thinking is that, though, you know, China already has AIB, which is uh, infrastructure-related, uh, uh, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, and this has 100 members already, and including all the developed countries from UK, Germany, France, Italy, and uh, Australia, Canada, and all the rest. So, so I hope that the U.S. and, and Japan can join uh, AIB. And then, so we can probably have a kind of international consortium of uh, development banks, like AIB, uh, like World Bank, uh, ADB, AFDB, Inter-American Development Bank, so that we can use the uh, tap the vast uh, expertise of the global development banks. Together with AIB, then we can have a co-financing and some uh, project working together on Belt and Road so that we can really pull the capital together and then really tackle those uh, massive infrastructure uh, projects you need by those developing countries. So, so I think, you know, uh, certainly while you're taking down big investment projects, to particularly in the infrastructure area, which, which takes a long time to invest, which has a long time to get a project return, you really have to be careful with those uh, potential risks that the World Bank has singled out. There's been several figures that have been thrown around when talking about the amount of funding that's made available for BRI. The first number was something like one trillion U.S. dollars mm-hmm. at the first BRI forum in 2017. Xi Jinping said China would add 100 billion yuan to the Silk Road Fund, and two state-owned banks would provide special loans for BRI projects worth 380 billion yuan. And then there was the second BRI forum this past April, and Xi Jinping did not announce any specific new numbers on upcoming investment and loans. So is China still committed to providing this financial support? Is there any sort of pullback in terms of the amount of funding that's going to be made available? Probably don't think that China is uh, is pulling back. I, I can understand that the first initiative when they had the first Belt and Road Summit that China needs to put in some seeds money. You know, I always regard the Belt and Road as a global project, as a common project. China may be just like a, uh, you know, if we use another comparison is that uh, it's like a venture capital project. China puts in the seeds money and then that's have A round, B round and everybody, you know, 
uh, make the project fly. So I think the first Belt and Road Summit is really to uh, to have some seeds money and have some uh, creating this kind of atmosphere and narrative to go ahead. But the second summit, they are more realistic, more sober-minded, and also they have received a lot of, including criticism, a lot of suggestions. So they're more attached to the rulemaking or maybe how to make it more transparent. For example, Minister of Finance of China are looking at how to make new rules of financing transparency, and there's some kind of agreement on that. And also they are attaching more institutional collaboration. They've been working with, uh, you know, MOU with the World Bank, UNDP, and uh, AADB, and all the institutions of international lending agencies. So there's more efforts on that. And also, I think that initially there was a lot of Chinese money from the State Development Bank, but now they are broadened that. They set up some so growth funds, they set up some other channels, but also there's some private sector money comes in as well. So, so now I think it's in a time of more rational, more systematic approach, rather than initially, you know, when the project just announced, everybody was rushing. And then, so I think in a way it's good that second summit didn't give any specific numbers, but it showed more determination as actually there's more people attending the second Belt and Road Summit. The first Belt and Road Summit I attended in 2017, there's about 1,500 delegates. I was wondering, where are the businessmen? So CCG made a proposal saying, you know, we should have more business people involved. Belt and Road after will be a business project. So the second summit, we have 3,500 delegates. And out of that, almost 1,000 are the business. There's a business summit set up for that. So I think that it's really Chinese, is, uh, the project is now wants to inviting all the multinationals to come in and want to stimulate in the private sector interest. So as you see, there's more and more private sector interest now. And then uh, now I would like to call maybe more have more international lending agency interest that they work together, China can work together. And so even make it more transparent, China, maybe I, we were thinking, you know, if that possible, China could also be a Paris Club member and then maybe to get more uh, developed on that. So it's good that there's more countries involved as well, including G7, like uh, Italy, like uh, Sweden, uh, Switzerland, and quite a few developed countries. And then even Japan, the France, signed MOU with China to work on third countries. Actually, it's, you know, it's included public belt and road countries. You mentioned Italy. So let me ask about the MOU, the Memorandum of Understanding that was signed between China and Italy this past March. And you know, Italy became the first Western country to sign on to the BRI. And so I'm wondering, you know, why you think that Italy agreed to join, whether you think that this is going to pave the way for other Western countries to become part of BRI. Yeah, that's right. It's very uh, interesting that Italy signed the MOU with China on Belt and Road because Italy itself needs a lot of infrastructure innovation and, and renovation as well, even expansion. Also that Italy's port and also, you know, now that well equipped for more exchanges of, of goods and, and import and export. The example I was giving, you know, one of the German port in Germany that uh, since Belt and Road trains coming from China has really made that port very busy now and create a lot of jobs. So I think Italy certainly wants to get benefit of this uh, Asian and uh, connectivity, particularly China. And then that's why they are signing SMU purely based on the economic reasons. And uh, they're not really thinking this is a political project. So, so I think, you know, that paved a great way to Belt and Road. But also, I think, on, on the other hand, it also helps Belt and Road. If we get the G7 countries to come in and to have a new set of a, a MOU, so they may bring in the European perspective, they may bring in the European standards, they can bring the European requirement and needs so that really it's a good move on that, probably. So, so that helps Belt and Road enrich enhance and improve its standard. Also, uh, CCG was participating in the, in the uh, EU project. There is a EU-Asia connectivity portal 
that the EU has uh, announced at the EU Asia Summit that we actually contribute into to one of those. So there's a lot of index has been identified on a, on a connectivity. And the Europeans also have this version of EU connectivity index. So I think the more countries get interest, the more countries participate, you will certainly improve Belton role and then make it more up to the international standards and more acceptable to the developing country, including developed countries. Is it better for China to convince the United States that the BRI is something positive and work with the U.S. and have Chinese companies work along with U.S. companies? Or is it better for China to be trying to win over European countries, work with them, and maybe drive a wedge between the United States and Europe, which might serve Chinese interests as well? Yeah, personally, I, I would actually think that Chinese Belt and Road is always open. Like the first Belt and Road Summit, China issued an invitation. There was a delegation from White House so that they actually participated. So it's really great. I think the, the Trump administration is really taking a better approach than, than probably previous Obama's approach than, than AIB. You know, when China invited U.S. to join AIB, U.S. was the one against that. And then AIB now has 100 members. They have a six president, five presidents outside from China, and then the staff of 250 staff coming from 47 countries. It's very international. And then India is the largest recipient of these 10 billion loans out of AIB. So I think that Belt and Road could probably repeat the same. But I think you know, the U.S. has taken a better approach. They have sent delegates to the Belt and Road Summit the first time. Second time, they had the embassy staff attended already. But I think, you know, since we have this uh, U.S.-China trade dispute and, and even trade war going on, you know, we need to find some common ground to work for the future. So Belt and Road is, is such a gigantic project for the, you know, the world needs some new impetus, as one of the developing country ambassadors told me that, look, for the last 10, 20 years, uh, we haven't seen any major initiative or big development plan floating around the world to really connect developing countries. China is the only country that did that. But I think, you know, since U.S. has done the Marshall Plan, has revived Europe and has really helped the boom of the post-Second World War. So U.S. company has a lot of experience in terms of handling big projects, in terms of knowing all those countries' conditions and the legal and, and the language advantages. So it's probably great that if U.S. and China can work together on this new world development plan. And then that really can glue the two countries' uh, companies working together like they are doing so well in China, like like auto industry, they're doing so well. <laughs> U.S. company, uh, you know, high tech industry, Apple's and uh, Qualcomm and all the other. So why can't they expand their success to those developing countries? And then the developing country also China can use its expertise on infrastructure, which is very highly effective and efficient. So I do see Belt and Road could be one of the biggest low-hand food there that both countries can tap into and stimulate the economy of those countries and particularly to revive the world. Since the financial crisis of 2008, the world is really flat and we lack a big uh, stimulus. I think this is uh, really great if uh, U.S.-China can work together. And also by involving U.S., we can have a more G2 type of approach, but then we can also work with Europeans, with Japanese and uh, everybody that we can really make this uh, forward. I will certainly welcome U.S. to participate in the Belt and Road. As part of the Trump administration's free and open Indo-Pacific strategy, there seems to be a real focus on competition with China and particularly in this area of infrastructure. So we've seen the passage by Congress of the Build Act. The Trump administration has created the International Development Finance Corporation and recently created something called the Blue Dot Network, which mm-hmm. will basically be a seal of approval for infrastructure projects. And I think the goal is 
to show that Western companies build projects that are built to a certain standards, and they will get that blue dot seal. Yeah, yeah. And the goal maybe is to say China's projects won't get that yeah. seal. So is this a challenge for China? Or does China maybe welcome the competition? Will this help Chinese companies to raise the standards? Or is this not the way we should be going forward? I think this is really already, you know, the Chinese initiative on BRI already got a lot of uh, uh, attention and uh, focus on the infrastructure development around the world, including the developing countries and including Indo-Pacific. So this is probably a good thing. China started this infrastructure project type of global movement. And then, as I said, you know, the EU has already uh, launched its own version of Euro-Asia Connectivity uh, Portal, which they analyzed several hundred connectivity indexes, trying to use empirical data to verify the connectivity. So I think you know, the more people get involved, the more people want to contribute, it certainly won't be a bad thing. It provides more angles, more dimensions, more comparison, and more attention to the project. The thing is that maybe we should get a coordinated approach rather than everybody dies on their own and there is no economy of the scale. So I think I don't mind U.S. is really having this kind of more focus on the infrastructure for developing countries, but just find a way how we can work together. That's probably the key. I think that with China have more experience on the infrastructure capacity itself. U.S. has more institution building, more has a more rule-based kind of project approach. So I, I think it would be a good marriage, a good comparison, you know, a good combination of the, of the two and including the EU and the, so that we can really using this as, as a common objective that can really seal some kind of new global project lines, uh, including U.S. and EU and Japan, every country. So finally, we can find some common language. Uh, rather than this kind of a downward spiral of the sentiment of geopolitical, let's get project political working together. And then we can probably find a new objective for the next uh, seven decades. We can build a new prosperity and peace to the world by tackling this massive, gigantic shortage of the infrastructure. So let's launch this infrastructure revolution for the world that started by China. But then we can have U.S. and EU, everybody participate so that we can have a peaceful world ahead. You have a great vision. So the last question that I'd like to ask, look in more concrete terms over the next three to five years, what really could be achieved in the BRI? This is Xi Jinping's flagship foreign policy project. I assume we'll have another BRI summit, mm -hmm. uh, maybe 2021. What do you think that China really would realistically like to achieve in the coming years in the short sort of medium term? Yeah, no, I think in the next uh, three, five years, I think the BI will be suddenly going global. You know, it will be more widely acceptance. There could be more uh, investment, more countries get involved. And also BI summit, as China is having that every two years, we will even propose maybe we should have during the one year we, uh, of the two years, we could have one that uh, hold it internationally, maybe in, in Europe, in the U.S. or Japan, whatever. So, so that make it really a global project. So I think that in the next uh, three, five years, I think Belt and Road itself, there will be more software building. You know, Belt is more related with hardware, with, with infrastructure project. But I think institution uh, lies, we, we hope to see more multilized BI. Maybe we could have international steering committee. We could have Belt and Road secretary office that established. We could have a Belt and Road arbitration center in, the, in Geneva or in Paris or even in the U.S. So, so we can try to make this more internationally viable and uh, acceptive. So I think that for the Belt and Road next three or five years, we certainly there will be more project public matured. We know there is already a high-speed railway going on in Bangkok, in Indonesia. We know that there's a lot of new projects being built. So three or five years, we will see more benefit of that coming up. 
And uh, so there will be more concrete examples, uh, more roads being established, more goods has been shipped, and then so that people have this belt and road framework. Belt and road hardware, software, probably gradually put in place. But most important, I think we'll get more international involvement, like United Nations already recognized Belt and Road. World Bank has welcomed Belt and Road. Uh, AIB, ADB, uh, all the infrastructure bank, uh, 1980s is very coming. Now is that we, we should really avoid become a geopolitical competition. We should avoid the Belt and Road become a political competition platform. So we hope that it goes back to its economic fundamentals and then really get more internationalization participation of the Belt and Road. And then that's important. U.S. and Western countries are getting more involved in that. So we hope that this is something we can usher in a new era for the prosperity and for the next 10, 20, 30, 50 years, uh, some new drive, some new uh, incentives for the world to go ahead and uh, to secure a lasting peace for the world, hope. Well, we will watch the BRI closely over the next few years and hopefully sometime get together and talk about it again. We've been talking with Dr. Wang Huiyao, the founder and president of the Center for China and Globalization. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Bonnie. Thank you for your interview.